Welcome to episode 825 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo, hey. I bet, I, you, know, you know it's an email show, but I bet if we wanted to, we could do an entire banter and Play Index show. Probably, because the banter does pile up while we're doing these previews and We've gotten countless tweets and emails about a couple of very effectively wild, long-running topics that we could probably discuss at least briefly. I don't know what you want to start with. Do you have banter you want to begin with? I do. I went to John Wayne Airport uh, yesterday, Mm -hmm. late afternoon, about seven hours after you posted the Angels preview, Uh and there was... (laughs) They had new murals? They did! What? (laughs) They did! (laughs) Really? They had added... 2012 to 2015. <laughs> they had added them. How how long was the time between visits to this airport? Two days. Two days. <laughs> but but more importantly, the, the time between you posting that <laughs> and my second visit to the airport was seven hours. So they the did. The drawings look hastily done. <laughs> no, they're not drawings. They're pictures. It's like oh, a, pictures. It's like okay. a, yeah, it's like a, it's, it's kind of like a timeline that you would make in, you know, in your third grade history class. Uh, except, uh, you know, like really well done with like good pictures and fun facts and things of that nature. And so, yeah, they had uh, they had an entire glass display that was now filled with 2012 to 2015, right, right, you know, just a few feet to the right of the 2008 to 2011 display. <laughs> so they had not updated these angels pictures on the wall for four years or so. <laughs> and then we mentioned it on the angels preview and seven hours later, they brought it up to date. That's, that's suspicious. It is, yeah. <laughs> there must be a John Wayne Airport employee who is a faithful listener to Effectively Wild. Yeah, if I don't so, know. let us know. I don't know what it is. I mean, it's conceivable that, that there's all sorts of possible explanations, but clearly the simplest is right. They, they heard it. They <laughs> what took did they action. have? Was it just a bunch of trout pictures? There was a lot of trout pictures. There was, uh, I, I mean, uh, like the Houston Street got his 300th save. Uh, they had like what they called the greatest comeback in Angels team history, which apparently took place uh, last last year when they came from behind in the ninth inning on like a Johnny Giovatella hit. You know, we talked a lot about Johnny Giovatella when he wasn't playing, and uh, then he basically played all year, and we didn't mention it. <laughs> yeah, our Johnny Giovatella love is uh, is not not that strong. Yeah, I think it was always predicated on his not playing. Yeah, it was. Uh, so things like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of trout as well. Huh. Well, that's very suggestive. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Not only that, but, you know, we talk about trout a lot, too. So, like, I bet if it weren't for that, they would have left trout off completely. Yeah, that's true. No, I I don't know. I imagine, I imagine, I would, if I had to bet, I would bet that they had up to 2014 there for all those years. And then... Uh, uh, they took it down so that they could update it with 2015, and I happened to walk past on that day. That's my guess. Could be. It is spring training season. It seems like the time of year, I guess, when you would update pictures of angels on the wall in an airport if you were ever going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. 
I'm filing it away in the category of things that we've talked about that happened right after we talked about them, which if you do 825 episodes of a podcast will happen a few Mm -hmm. times. Yep. Okay. I think this is the year for Ryan Webb. I think this is going to be it. Uh, Tommy, as soon as he signed, Tommy Renzel sent me a prediction that Webb was definitely getting a save. Yeah. I mean, I think this is it. We got tons of tweets. Of course, Ryan Webb, popular, long-running character on Effectively Wild, has been interviewed, not for Effectively Wild, but his interview ended up on Effectively Wild without his knowledge. But he is the all-time leader in games finished without a save with 98 And of course, he has had some excellent years when he could have conceivably gotten a save, and it's just never happened for him for one reason or another. And this seems like the year. The Rays have signed him. The Rays are very egalitarian with their distribution of saves. Last year, eight Rays relievers got at least one save. And of course, they've traded Jake McGee, who would have been a strong contender for saves. So he's out of the way. So you have incumbent Brad Boxberger, who was not a closer, of course, before the Rays made him a closer last year. And you have Kevin Cash, who seems very happy to spread the saves around. And so it seems like if Ryan Webb is ever going to get a chance, this should be a a decent team. Pakoda certainly thinks it's going to be a good team. So if that's the case, there should be a fair number of save opportunities to go around. And so this seems like ryan webb's best chance ever he's 30 he's still more or less at the peak of his powers it's ever going to happen for him this is the best shot he is currently ninth on their bullpen depth chart uh, at mlb.com uh-huh. uh and i get i don't know you think that the ray i mean last year the rays were very egalitarian with their saves because mcgee was hurt mm-hmm. um and i don't i'm i'm trying to figure out if that is the norm or not i don't i don't know what would be normal for a team how many is normal for a team like in 2012 when they had fernando rodney for instance who was a proven closer they only had two guys get saves Mm -hmm. in 2011 with kyle farnsworth they only had three guys get saves on the other hand you're right in 2015 they had did you say six six eight really yeah why do this says six? Oh yeah, I tried to play index this earlier, and it was the rare case of the play index not working perfectly, just because some players were traded or changed teams midseason, and so they were not listed as raised. They were listed as just total or something, just because it was their combined line for multiple teams. Uh. So the race had Brad Boxberger, who got forty-one saves, and then they had a bunch of guys who got a few McGee got six and then it was Steve Jeltz and Brandon Gomes and Xavier Cedeno and Kevin Jepson got five and Matt Andrees and Ernesto Frieri got a couple. So there was a long tail of saves in the Rays bullpen. Hang on. I'm uh, I think that I, I don't want to leave this with even the slightest indication that play index <laughs> can't, can't do this. So okay. hang on. So I'm going to, I'm trying an alternate path. Okay. To this answer. I was trying to figure out whether the Rays had the most guys, because I know the, the Cubs, I think, had seven guys get saves, and maybe the Rockies. Okay, so I've got, yeah. So if you do the uh, the uh, Game the Finder, eight. if you do Game Finder, then it does uh, it does turn up your eight. So that has been confirmed. Okay. Uh, so then, did you look year by year by chance? Nope. Okay, so 2014, they had seven, including... Uh, unwitting friend of the show, Jeff 
Bellabo. <laughs> uh, and in 2013, uh, they had six. And that year, they had uh, Fernando Rodney as the closer. In 2012, they had two. So that was correct. And in 2011, they had three. So it's suggestive, mm-hmm. to be sure. And Kevin Cash was vocal about not having a closer, at least early in the year. I don't know whether he maintained this throughout the year, but in April and May, he said he wasn't going to name a closer. Even when McGee came back, he said he wasn't going to name a closer. He even said Brad Boxberger wasn't the closer. This was for a month or two. I don't know if he maintained this all year once it became clear that Boxberger pretty much was the closer, but he at least has this willingness to go into the year without anointing one person. All right. I accept it. Okay. Uh, Pretty good chance then. Yeah. What, 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 well, what kind of chance though? I mean, first of all, he hasn't, he, he hasn't made, you know, he like, he could be cut, you know, in spring training, he could be cut two weeks into the season. So it's not as though you're guaranteed he's going to see the river. Mm -hmm. Uh, He might not make it. Um, He will, I mean, uh, what do you think are the chances? Let me just, okay, (laughs) that'll be the question. What are the odds? I think the odds are... I think he has a thirty percent chance. Okay, that's it. Yeah, really, I can't. I can't argue with that. That's about it's, right. It's really improbable that he has made it this long. That's the thing. Like, it's there's no precedent for someone making it this long. It's really weird. If you look at Ryan Webb-like relievers, they've all vultured a save here and there. So it's just very strange that he doesn't have one. It's very improbable and random, and obviously reflects some of you know his managers and his team's thinking of his capabilities but it's also just a, a fluke that it hasn't happened yet so ben I let think, me yeah. let me let me ask you this question this is okay. a different question but let's say that you're at the uh, henry holton company 150th anniversary party on <laughs> april 27th yes. and uh kevin cash is there let's say kevin cash is a uh as as going to this fancy pants party and you get seated at the the table with him and uh, you get to talking, and he says, well, what do you do? And you explain. And he goes, oh, great, fun. And, and then you, somehow you get on the topic of Ryan Webb, and you tell him about this remarkable place in history that Ryan Webb holds. Do you think Kevin Cash responds to that by making sure Ryan Webb gets a save or making sure Ryan Webb doesn't get a save? <laughs> I think he would not acknowledge that it has affected his actions at all. And I think, if anything, it would make him slightly more likely. <laughs> I don't know whether I'm really rooting for Ryan Webb. I think I am. <laughs> but I also like the fact that he is this oddity and has never gotten a save. It gives us something to talk about. And having talked to him about it, I don't get the sense that it causes him any great distress. So I don't think his life would be materially improved if he were to get a save. So I don't feel like I have to root for him for that reason. So I think I'm rooting for him just sort of as an underdog story. And I think even if it's subconsciously, at some point in the season, Kevin Cash is going to face a decision where he's going to have a a lead to protect and maybe it's an easy save situation. And he's going to have to choose between, you know, two or three guys who are essentially indistinguishable. And if he knows this thing about Ryan Webb, and for all I know, he does, I think at least subconsciously, he would have to influence his thinking a little bit unless you think that he'd be less likely to do it because no manager has ever done it and so there's you know some risk associated with it oh like he'd be like he'd take the bayesian approach yeah right like no one has trusted him with this before there must be a reason 
Uh, all right. Uh, so this is the part of the show where there's going to be a quick sound effect. Unboxing of something? It is an unboxing of something. What are you unboxing? You don't know, huh? Is this our book? It is our book. So you got our book before I, I have, did. I have 25 copies of our book. No, 10 copies of our book right now in my hands. So it's a jacketed galley, so it's not the final product, but what does it look like? Uh, it is paperback. It's got the uh, the actual cover with a little stamp that says Advanced Reader's Edition. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it's got your picture on the back. Uh, it does not have blurbs, mm. but otherwise it looks like a paperback book. It's not clear that this is anything other than a book. Does it have pictures? No, no pictures. Mm. Okay. But uh, this is it. Like you could, you could hold this in your hand and read it as a and book. I, I will later today. So... These books were overnighted from New York yesterday and somehow reached you in California before they got to me in Manhattan. Yeah. All right. Wow. Fun. Cool. All right. Another milestone reached. Yep. Okie doke. All right. And the other thing that we got tons of tweets and emails and comments about was the guy who hit a home run at Globe Life Park and won free season tickets because... He got three swings and the Rangers did the the competition where people get three swings and if they hit a home run, they get season tickets. And we had talked about this once or twice before on email shows. People had asked us about it and we generally thought it was somewhere between improbable and and impossible, right? We decided it was impossible for you, Uh even though you have uh, good power. Uh Uh, that you don't have good enough power, and that it was very un- I- improbable for anybody else. But this was a this was a totally different game than the one we were talking about. We were talking about what the Padres when the Padres did it. Yeah, how is this different? Well, for one thing, and this is not the big thing, although I will mention it. For one thing, the Padres play in you know Petco Park, sure, and Texas plays in Texas. No, yeah, Texas. Yeah. Uh, although at least Texas, it's Texas in February. I don't know how much. The ballpark of Arlington plays as a hitter's park in February. Uh-huh. Um, but the key thing is that, as I recall, I, I might be wrong about this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but as I recall, that was one pitch. You got one pitch, and we yeah. decided that it was like virtually impossible right. to, to hit the first pitch you see out. Uh, and like even, I, I don't remember this conversation that well, but I think that even like Isaac who's our power hitting catcher would have a very hard time hitting the first pitch he sees from an unfamiliar pitcher uh, or pitching machine uh, out uh, of unknown speed, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just felt like really hard to imagine the first, like even guys first pitch of BP is, well, usually they have to bunt, uh, but I don't know how often the first pitch of BP is even hit out. Anyway, this guy in Texas, who, congratulations, he's a better hitter than both of us are for sure. Mm-hmm. But he, I think he hit it on the 14th pitch he saw. Oh, really? He, he, it was yeah, his third he, swing, right? Third and final swing. It was, it, was his, it was reported as his third and final swing. I think I only watched it once, and I'm a pretty good counter. <laughs> I think it was his fourth swing. I think he fouled one off, and I don't think they counted it. Oh. He he began by bunting three, oh, interesting. or bunting around three, maybe bunting four, and then taking a bunch. These are all from a pitching machine. Yeah, and he's so, he, but he takes a bunch. He takes like five, and then he swings at a couple, takes one or takes a couple. 
I thought that he then fouled one off into the screen, but I might I might be wrong. I might have miscounted. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he and then he gets one. So he got fourteen pitches to yeah, do it. Changes things. <laughs> if, and so no, I mean he de- like I I don't bring all this up to 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 knock the achievement. I'm saying though that when we were asked to predict whether this could be done, if you'd said he gets fourteen pitches, I would have said, oh yeah, totally, could completely mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm more defending myself. Yeah. Okay. That's totally reasonable. Okay. Okay. All right. Actual questions. Let's take one from Sam, who is a British fan. He says, when I was 12, 11 years ago, I went to my first ball game in Shea Stadium for a Mets versus Cubs game. I absolutely loved it and sat with my dad next to a couple of experts. So I found it fairly easy to follow that game. Since then, I've watched countless games and read every book I can get my hands on. I now regale my friends with fascinating baseball facts, and they don't seem to go down that well. However, my question is this. When I originally tried to work out how the season was scheduled, I saw that a lot of teams played each other in blocks of three and thought that probably teams played a series against each other, and then the winner of the season was the team that won the most series. So how do you think teams would adjust and the game would change if teams played 54 three-game series a year? Also, if this was the system that was chosen, would you decide the winner of a series by the first team to two wins or by aggregating the runs across the three games? The latter would mean that there were no dead rubbers. To use what? A British term. <laughs> I assume that that means a game where the outcome is already Rubber match. Decided. Dead rubber match, yeah. Well, not a rubber. Rubber match is where it decides the series. And I think well, dead but- rubber must be where... It's it's a rubber match that doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. So don't, yeah I mean, right. So do you think it's got to come from the same root though, right? Yeah, I would think so. But it would also mean that Americans had to get used to tie games in the first two matches, or if one team was ahead going into the last match and that match was level. So All how right. would strategy change if it was just a series of best of threes and you just had to win the best of three? Well, it's probably been hundreds of episodes since the last time I mentioned that one of my favorite things about old baseball, pre-modern baseball, even even older than that, like pre-dead ball baseball, uh, is that they used to play the bottom of the ninth regardless. Yeah, right. And I, um, I sometimes when I'm bored, I will sit and think about how baseball would be if they had to play that, like how they would treat it, whether we would have any expectations for that bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, or whether the, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know how it would it would play. And so in the, in this case, you could, the, the, the way that this is significant is almost entirely in that, uh, you wouldn't have to play the third game a lot of times. Like that's, that's what would change baseball. And you could sort of make the case that there's too much baseball and Mm -hmm. that if you can sort of accomplish the same thing with games, which is a sorting mechanism of trying to figure out which teams are the best. If you can accomplish the same thing in fewer games, that would maybe be better for the sport, if not for the TV contracts um, and so on. So so you would have like, uh, what well, you'd have like 25, 30 fewer games that at least that matter. And the question then is whether they would still go out there and run these games like farcically or whether they would cancel them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they cancel them, that would be interesting and I'd be fine with that. And I think that might make baseball a little interesting. Uh, if they didn't cancel it, it would suck. Yeah. yeah. I guess they play, you know, I mean, if the Marlins and the Phillies get eliminated, 
uh, on September 4th, they still play (laughs) their three-game series. Uh Uh, So I guess they would probably play. And so then you'd have... You'd ha- you'd have just these games in the middle of the season that wouldn't matter, and I think that to some degree, part of what baseball has to overcome is uh, us discovering how much of it doesn't matter. Uh, you, they they need to they need us to believe it matters, and so having something so explicit, explicitly meaningless, would probably be bad. It would probably uh, chip away at our belief in mm-hmm. the stakes of the sport. Yeah. So probably not good. I think don't do it. <laughs> no, definitely don't do it. I don't know how it would affect team construction. I mean, you would you would want to rest your starters a lot more probably unless you think that it gets them out of their rhythm or something. And so and not only would you want to rest them, but you wouldn't care what the bench guys did basically. Like the bench guys would almost always be playing in these meaningless games other than injury substitutions. And so it, it really wouldn't matter that much. So I, I guess you would, I don't know if you'd have more, either more pitchers or more position players. I don't know if the composition would skew one way or the other. But Yeah, I would guess that you would see a lot more money invested in the, the talent because you would, there'd be more of a benefit to having a stars and scrubs team. You Since you know that your stars are going to have plenty of rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they're going to rest basically the third game of every other series, more yeah. or less. You would probably be able to get away with a lot less true depth, uh, a lot fewer players that you actually need to call on because your stars would be healthier. They wouldn't need that rest when it matters. They could play every inning that counts. And to some degree, same with your pitchers. And so you would really want to invest a lot more at the top of your roster, and then you would you could go as cheap as you wanted. You could have the accountant play... Uh, for uh, at the bottom of the roster, mm-hmm. uh, so that would probably happen. Now, what about in the total of runs? See the the total of runs the the flip the this the the having the total number of runs determine the winner is the exact flip because instead of then having a sixth of the season basically be rendered completely meaningless, you now make every inning significant uh-huh. regardless of you know regardless of who has won the games you've you basically like you could make the case you could you could design a baseball season that is entirely determined by runs scored uh, and runs lost uh, runs allowed uh, and then you would have much more of the season be significant every run would count even if you were up 10 nothing you'd still have an incentive to bring in your closer because that run hurts you regardless. And so that seems to me, and I think we've talked about various iterations of that question before, where uh, that puts probably too much strain on the players. Like there's just not, the grind is enough as it is, and they need these meaningless ninth innings in 10 run games, part of the way that they get through the long season. Um, And so that would probably be too much. And then the first one would probably be not enough. Like there's actually kind of a nice balance of meaningful baseball probably in the season as it is mm-hmm. um, where you do have to, if you're a competitive team, you do have to treat every game the same, but you don't have to treat every inning the same. Uh, and uh, going in either direction, having some games be irrelevant is too casual and having all innings be life or death is too stressful. And uh, so they've kind of got a nice balance. Yep. Agreed. Okay. 
Question from Shamit. I have been a San Antonio Spurs fan for eight or nine years now. I recently got into baseball, but don't particularly support a team. I was wondering which team is the Spursiest team in baseball. Neither of us knows a whole lot about basketball, but based on what I know, I think the Cardinals are the clear leader here. They are good every year. They have a system that seems to work and that players are expected to buy into and conform to. They are known and to be boring, boring Mm. in a competent way, but their star is boring and good, but not flashy. And that's something that the Cardinals get either praised or uh, criticized for by people who don't like the Cardinals is that they are sort of proud of their boringness and lack of controversy. And they're good all the time. And people say they play the right way and all those kind of cliches. So seems like the the Cardinals are clearly the baseball Spurs. Yeah. Okay. All right. This one is probably more for you than for me because I don't think I listen to enough radio baseball to have an informed opinion here. But I don't either, by the way. Don't. Oh, no, okay. I. Oh. the question is who are our favorite radio broadcasters? Yes. And Kevin I, in San Diego. And I... Um, I have a hard. I I do like listening to the radio baseball on the radio a lot, and I so I probably do have listened to every team's radio broadcast over the last couple of years. But there's something about radio broadcast that um, makes it harder to sort of tell them all apart. One thing is that you're paying less close attention. Probably it is more likely to be background noise. That's one of the, that's what makes radio so great is that you do it while you're uh, you know doing chores and stuff, um, and so it's more background. Uh, and you don't ever see their faces, and so you don't have this visual image. You just have a voice, and, and to some degree, uh, most broadcasters have similar timbers and so on. So, uh, so they all do blend together, um, and I so I don't really have a good answer. I would I, I think what did I think maybe Car- Carson did the TV broadcasters. I think Some Carson years ago. did radio also. But yeah, so he, so he, I would be interested in his. Maybe I'll ask him. Maybe I'll send him an email and see if I can get an answer before it ends. But it would be a fun project to do to repeat Carson's or just to do it for fun. Uh, but I mean, it's clear that the Mets and the Giants have the two best by a mile. They're the two that really stand out. Uh, and uh, there are other teams that are good and other, you know, and others that are bad. But I don't feel comfortable enough. Uh, with my rankings to say which ones are bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I've always liked the Astros. Uh, and f- for some reason in my head, I have uh, Brewers being good. I don't know why, uh, <laughs> but I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the Giants and the Mets are both just completely dynamite. Yeah, Carson's crowdsourced radio ratings at Fangraphs. This was 2012, so some of these teams may have changed. But the top five... At the time was Blue Jays number five, Indians number four, Rangers number three, Brewers number two, and Giants number one. Interesting. Uh, what does it say? Who did it say the Mets were at the time? They are not in the top ten. They were 16th, Howie Rose and Wayne Hagen. Oh, yeah. So since then, Josh Lewin yeah. has taken over, and Josh Lewin's a treasure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Play index. Sure. So I I don't think I've done this one before. Even if I have, I have all new information. The One of my uh, back pocket fun facts from a few years ago involved Raphael Betancourt 
percentage of walks that were intentional versus Jonathan Sanchez's percentage of walks that were intentional. Uh-huh. You have one guy who has got perfect control and never walks anybody, uh, and another guy who has horrible control and walks everybody. And so their percentages are very different. And uh, the juxtaposition of those two was interesting. Anyway, I wanted to see. I don't want to give those answers away yet. I will get in. I'll, I'll get their percentages to you in a minute. But first, I wanted to see who the ultimate intentional walker is relative to his overall control. And so, first things first, just to give you a baseline. of all walks last year were intentional. And so I looked since 1961, I think, to see who had the uh, highest rate of intentional walks. For total walks, I want your guess. What is it? What is it going to be? And I set the minimum at like, uh, I think the minimum was like 20 intentional walks delivered. Uh-huh. Sanchez, Sanchez has, I think, allowed... Uh, yeah, Jonathan Sanchez intentionally walked 15 guys in his career. I think I, I think I did set this at 15 in recognition of Sanchez. What, um, what am I guessing here? The highest percentage of walks that were intentional for an individual pitcher. How high would it be? What, w- what would be the highest percentage that a pitcher has had? Uh-huh. And so just, again, 7% is the uh, average last year. And uh, I use Jonathan Sanchez's career total as my minimum. 12%. All right. Good guess. Um, so uh, not, not remotely close. <laughs> so first I, I set the play index to uh, – this play index has this little tool where you can have – you can search by stats. So you can see, well, sort by home runs, right, uh, or filter by home runs. Only players with 340 home runs or more in my search, okay? Or you can do the proportion of – so – uh, in this case, I set it so that the percentage of intentional walks was at least 10% of total walks. And that gave me 1,042 pitchers uh, since 1961. So uh, I set then I set it to 20%, uh, and that gave me 200. And then I set it to 30%, and that gave me 29. So uh so at least 29 pitchers, well, exactly 29 pitchers have had at least 30% of their walks be intentional. So then I set it to 40%, and there are three. Huh. D- Dan Quisenberry is the uh, king of this for the long career crowd. Dan Quisenberry had 43% of his career walks <laughs> were intentional. That's crazy. It is super crazy. <laughs> 43%. Uh, at the same level, but with a much shorter career it's a fellow named dave eilers uh who had 45 percent of his but the king then the king is a, a fellow named don dennis now remember you league average seven percent you guessed 12 percent dan quisenberry the master 43 percent don dennis though 64 <laughs> percent so what did his career look like? <laughs> All right. So Don Dennis, uh, and uh, partly this is because his career was not long enough for this to wash out, but Don Dennis walked 33 batters in his career, 21 of them intentionally, 21 <laughs> intentionally. Uh, he had, uh, he uh, Don Dennis pitched in the 60s. He was a right-hander in the 1960s. There are a few interesting things about him beyond this, uh, but... Focusing on this for a second, 
He threw 115 innings in his career as a, as a middle reliever and only inten- only unintentionally walked 12 batters in that time. So uh, you would say a control specialist, uh, less than a walk every 10 innings. But he intentionally walked nearly twice that many. Uh, of the 21, 16 came against right-handers. He was right-handed. And so that's unusual. <laughs> yeah. Three were against Ernie Banks. Two, including the last, were against uh, Willie Mays. And the typical Don Dennis intentional walk was much less about the batter, much more about two guys being in scoring position. And they just decided to put the guy on first, either because it was somebody good up and there were two outs in the inning or because they wanted to uh, apparently set up the double play. So uh, Don Dennis, other things about Don Dennis. uh, In 1965, he won the St. Louis Rookie of the Year Award. Which is a very specific award. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this was apparently an era. You know, everybody talks about the everybody gets a trophy era that we're in right now, and they all complain. In the 60s, everybody got a trophy even when they were in the majors. So I think there's a little bit of revisionist history here. They were given awards for the St. Louis Rookie of the Year. In his two-season career, uh, he had a 3.69 ERA and eight saves in 79 games. He died of cancer five, uh, seven years ago at age 65. Things I learned about him, thanks to his uh, his death and obituary, uh, he was, quote, an avid vacationer, uh, which is what I aspire to be. <laughs> uh, doesn't even say he was, it doesn't say he traveled a lot. He was an avid vacationer. He took a lot of vacation, yeah, just every he, year. He might not like have the, even gone anywhere. His employer gave him three weeks. That dude took six. <laughs> he was avid about vacation. That's probably why he went into baseball. He figured he'd get more of the year off. Maybe. Another thing about Don Dennis is that he uh, made his major league debut on June 18, 1965. He got married on July 12, 1965. He got married in the middle of a season, which doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. He got married 23 games after his major league debut, one day after pitching in both ends of a doubleheader. Uh, in which he walked two batters, one intentionally. Uh, In one of those games, he replaced Bob Gibson. But Bob Gibson was also pitching in relief, which is another weird thing about this era. Bob Gibson, at the height of his stardom, he won 20 games that year, just came into a game in relief (laughs) and threw threw four innings. And uh, then they they replaced him with another pitcher. Yeah. So that's Don Dennis. The flip side, by the way, Raphael, oh, well, I'll get to it. The flip side of this, the all-time non-intentional walker, is one of two answers, one of which is not that fun, and the other one is because then we can keep watching it. So I did the same thing, but um, with the lowest percentage of walks being intentional. And it won't surprise you that uh, with intentional walks going down as a genre, uh, that they're fairly recent players. Uh, One answer is Felix Dubront, who walked 219 batters in his career, and only one of them intentionally. But Felix Dubrant is not exciting. In a larger career, the answer is uh, actually the number two pitcher on this percentage list. John Lester, 592 walks in his career, only four of them intentionally. And uh, so he is, unless he starts intentionally walking people, he will go down as the king of the unintentional walk uh, or the uh, king of the non-intentional walker, whatever. To put John Lester in perspective, again, Lester, John Lester, 
famous player, you've heard of him for a long time, has four intentional walks in his career. Tyler Olson, a rookie who pitched 13 innings with the Mariners in 2015, has seven <laughs> in 13 innings. <laughs> in 13 innings, he has twice as many, almost twice as many intentional walks as John Lester in his career. Tyler Olson also only has three unintentional walks. He is, for the moment, essentially the only pitcher ever with a higher percentage than Don Dennis. But with only seven intentional walks, he does not clear our minimum filter. Right. Uh, one more direction to take this. Raphael Betancourt uh, is probably the king of the, the, the very modern era for in, uh, issuing intentional walks. But with intentional walks going down, that's only 24%. Uh, so I looked at active pitchers. And there are basically three guys at the top for percentage plus number, total number. But Betancourt is just barely active, if he is at all. Ronald Belisario, who is barely active, if he is at all. He pitched, I think, eight very poor innings last year. I would not expect to see him again. Uh, And the third, which arguably is the last one standing, is Ryan Webb. All right. All comes full circle. Exactly. Okay, good play index. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to play around with the play index yourself. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Okay, quick one from Jenny who says, I was checking out the baseball prospectus team depth charts earlier today and noted that in the NL Central, Pakota has the Cubs winning the division 92-70, and 70, followed by the Pirates at 83-79, and 79, the Cardinals at 82-80, and 80, and the Brewers and Reds at worse than that. I was curious as to what your opinions are on how the NL Central will turn out this year. I am a Pirates fan, and I certainly could not have predicted a 98-win season for them last year or that the best three teams in baseball would be in the NL Central. So who do you have winning the division, and will the NL Central dominate this season as it did last season? I would say it's unlikely that it will dominate to the same extent. The Cubs have gotten better, probably. They won't necessarily win more games, but they've gotten better. The Cardinals, I guess, have gotten worse, but are still good. The Pirates, I don't know. They probably won't win 98 again, but... They are still good, too. And the Brewers and Reds are still bad, possibly worse. But I would say that things like the NL Central dominating like it did last year or the NL East being dominated as much as it was last year, probably the sort of thing that you would expect to regress. I mean, not dramatically, maybe. I mean, there were years where the AL East was just the best and beat up on everyone, and that was several years in a row, many years in a row. So it's not as if there's so much turnover in a single offseason that you wouldn't expect the best division one year to still, you know, not be good the next year. But I I don't uh, really differ from Pakoda's at least rank order of those teams at all. Do you? No, I think uh, it seems like a reasonable rank, especially when you consider that the Cardinals and Pirates are, you know, basically in a tie. Mm-hmm. I, I think pretty much... Every, I think I think almost everybody who is who looks at this is surprised by how low all three of those teams are um, uh-huh. in total wins. I, I I was surprised that the Cubs were not projected to be the best team in baseball. Yep. Uh, and ninety two feels a little light, but I always get we all always get caught up uh, by off season uh, 
activities. Uh, but you know, the Cubs feel like a team that was a legitimate 97, 98 last year. Uh, and even with a little regression, they improved substantially at three spots on the diamond and they have, um, you know, youth on their side. So, uh, that felt low. Um, the Cardinals, I can sort of see because the raw numbers suggested a team that had, uh, hit and pitched into a lot of luck last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they did take some hits to their roster. Uh, and then the pirates, I was trying to figure out why I I'm trying to figure out why the Pakota doesn't really like the pirates. They haven't for the last few days, but uh, for the last few years, but there hasn't, as I showed last week, there, there isn't really a trend of Pakota not liking teams uh, for multi-year periods. Uh, there isn't really a tendency for Pakota to miss the same team the same way multiple years in a row. So that doesn't seem to be any particular evidence against Pakota. Uh, and yet 83, I mean, they, they had a legitimate 90, what, 97, 98 last year and didn't lose much, lose Burnett, lose Walker, but it's not like the team took a lot of hits, right? Nope. Mm-mm. So if I, 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 you know, if I had to pick a projection that stood out across baseball, you know, the Royals one is obviously the one that gets the attention. Uh, but if you imagine a world where Pakoda had projected the Royals to win 86, I bet we're all talking about the Pirates projection right now. Yeah. Okay. We've done enough, I think. You okay. can send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballprospectus.com. If we are able to work out some scheduling stuff, we'll have the next preview tomorrow, which should be the Royals, which should be of interest to some people. And you can rate, interview, subscribe to the show on iTunes, and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. We will be back soon.